0: You're listening to Case Confirmed. On this episode, Dina and I have interviewed Dr. Forget. Dr. Forget is an economist, a professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba, and academic director of the Manitoba Research Data Center. She's an adjunct scientist with the Manitoba Center for Health Policy, and a research associate with the Manitoba First Nation Center for Aboriginal Health Research. Her current research focuses on the health and social consequences of anti-poverty interventions and the cost-effectiveness of healthcare interventions. Since we're releasing
1: this episode in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, we just wanted to give a huge thank you to all the medical workers and essential staff who are showing up each day and giving their all to get us through the pandemic safely. Remember, we're all in this together. It's important for us to support each other during this difficult time during the pandemic. We here at Case Confirmed hope to continue being there for you. Continue keeping in touch with your loved ones all around the world. Feel free to send us a message on Facebook, Instagram,
0: or caseconfirmed.com. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Forget for joining us. Um- really excited to talk to you about MINCOM, which is the Manitoba Basic Annual Income Experiment for our listeners, which took place in Manitoba in the 1970s. So Dr. Forget, um, since you're an expert on this topic, would you be able to tell us how you first became interested in it?
2: You know, I think I've known about this project my entire adult life. Uh, the first time I heard about it was in 1975, and I was sitting in a first-year economics class in Toronto. And at the time, I was a psychology major. I wasn't looking forward to uh, a year of economics, but um, the professor came in and started to talk about this wonderful experiment that was taking place way out west somewhere and would revolutionize the way we delivered social assistance in Canada. And that piqued my interest for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, I mean, I, I was interested in using economics to make people's lives better. But I'd also had a little bit of uh, personal experience with income assistance. My family had been dependent on the system a little bit earlier, so I knew some of the limitations of that system. And so I was very eager to find out uh, how basic income worked and what kind of a difference it made in people's lives. And so I followed it throughout my undergraduate career and then I graduated and went on to uh, graduate school and people stopped talking about this um, income experiment. And um, if you remember your economic history of the 1970s, it was a very difficult economic period. There was a lot of unemployment and very high interest rates, high inflation. Mm -hmm. And governments that um, had gone into the decade wanting to do something about poverty um, were distracted by everything else that was happening a little bit later. So it just sort of fell off the radar and nobody was talking about it anymore. And several years later, I found myself working in Winnipeg and it turned out that Winnipeg was one of the sites of this experiment and um so i again was aware of this old experiment that didn't seem to have come to anything and um i was employed by the faculty of medicine at the university of manitoba mm-hmm. And when you're a health economist in Canada, there's only one question that everybody has for you all the time, and that is how are we going to pay for this healthcare system? How are we going to make it sustainable? And um, so I went looking for this experiment to find out what had happened to it. I'm just curious, as somebody who's not really
1: familiar with this experiment, what was the experiment exactly? What is income? I'm curious how basic income was determined.
2: Mincome was one of five experiments that took place in North America, large field experiments. Um, Four of them were in the U.S. and one in Canada. They were called negative income tax experiments in the U.S. And in Canada, it was known as a guaranteed annual income experiment. The amount of money depended on family size. So at the time, a family of four would earn about uh, $4,800 would be the basic guarantee a year. And if you remember, that uh, prices have probably increased six times since then, five or six times. Uh, and um, most of the experiments, all four American experiments, and a large part of the income experiment was set up as a randomized control trial. So in Winnipeg, for example, the researchers came to town, chose a small proportion of the total population, randomized them into a treatment group, which would receive the guaranteed annual income, and a control group who would uh, make do with whatever programs they were eligible for. The purpose of the experiment was to find out that if you whether if you gave people a basic income, if you gave them a guaranteed annual income, would they work fewer hours? Would they reduce their commitment to work? And so the idea was that at the end of the it was a 3-year period during which families received support. The idea was that at the end of 3 years, you could compare the results for people who received income and uh, people in the control group. There was another site in Manitoba in the town of Dauphin, which was a town of about 10,000 people. And um, Dauphin was a little bit different because it was a saturation site. And what that meant was that the researchers came to town. They made the program very widely known to the population and everybody was eligible to participate. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody received money. They only received money if their income fell below um, the agreed upon threshold. But they all received the promise that if they needed the money, it would be there for them. So it was dependent on income, but, um, but, but they did receive the guarantee that uh, wasn't generally available. And so the data, the money flowed for about three years. The data was collected. The economic period got very challenging in Canada and in the US and really across the world. And um, by the time the data was collected and the experiment ended, The researchers had run out of money for the analysis, and governments had really moved on to other economic issues. And so this data was all sort of packed away for a number of years. I know one of the biggest concerns with universal basic
0: income is that people might lose the motivation to work. Did we see that happen in the Mincome experiment?
2: Um, In the 1980s, um, a couple of labor economists went back and looked at the Winnipeg sample. And uh, the results were very intriguing um, and entirely consistent with other experiments that have taken place, and that is uh, for primary earners. that is for adults with full-time jobs, people who were working before income came along, continued to work afterwards. Um, but there were two groups of people who reduced the number of hours they worked pretty dramatically. Uh, the first were new mothers. And if you put yourself back into the 1970s in Canada, new mothers were entitled to about four weeks. And there were a lot of new mothers who thought that that was a rather miserly period of parental support. And um, so women who left the labor force to give birth tended to stay out of, out of the workforce longer, to stay with their infants longer before they returned to work. But the other group of uh, people who reduced the number of hours they worked and here the language is really, really important were uh, young unattached males, <laughs> that is, hmm. uh, young men who were not married, who didn't have children. And they reduced the number of hours. They worked really dramatically. And that seemed to um, that seemed to um, be consistent with a lot of the stereotypes, a lot of the fears mm. that people brought to the idea of uh, guaranteed annual income. And this is where it sort of sat for a number of years. And about 10 years ago, I was getting very frustrated by... Um, by the healthcare system's focus on um, spending money after people have become sick. And I remembered this old experiment and I wondered what impact MENCOM might have had on the health of the family. So I went looking for the data. And in particular, I went looking for these young unattached males because I had a pretty fair idea of what had happened. Um, And it, it was masked a little bit by the way the results were reported. And uh, so I I did eventually find the data. And uh, one of the first things I found was that there was a rather dramatic increase in high school completion rates during the period. Young men in low-income families were under a fair amount of family pressure to become self-supporting as quickly as they could um, so that the family money could go to support younger brothers and sisters. And when income came along, some of those families decided they could support their son in high school just a little bit longer. So what we had was a whole cohort of kids who finished high school at a time when it really wasn't typical in a small prairie town for low-income um, boys to finish high school. That's a really interesting finding about the young single males. And um, to me, that's a really intriguing result because if you think about the differences in life opportunities for somebody who managed to finish high school in the mid-70s as opposed to somebody who didn't, um, they're rather dramatic. Um, the the boys who left school at age 16 certainly got jobs at the time, but they got jobs in agriculture and they got jobs in manufacturing. And both of those sectors have just been devastated by the economic changes that have taken place in the last 40 years. Um, But I was really interested in health. And so I was very fortunate for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, Canada just introduced uh, universal health insurance. And um, one of the... um, one of the consequences of universal health insurance is that there's a great deal of data available. Every interaction with the healthcare system is uh, recorded, and you can put together families and uh, family histories and so on. And so I was able to track down that administrative data and to look at the hospitalizations. In Dauphin, you found an
1: 8.5% reduction in hospitalizations in families that receive mincom relative to a
2: matched control group. Could you speak more on that? So an 8.5% reduction in hospitalization overall. And then I looked a little bit more closely to find out why people were being hospitalized less often. And there were really two, um, two codes, two big categories that were responsible for the, um, uh, for the change. Um, The first was a reduction in accidents and injuries. And that, of course, is picking up, um, you know, picking up all kinds of acute hospitalizations. But the second and in some ways more interesting result was a reduction in hospitalizations for mental health um, issues. I looked at um, visits to family doctors and I found a similar kind of reduction in visits to family doctors for people who received mincom relative to the control group. And um, the only thing that was statistically significant was uh, the reduction due to mental health issues. Um, so those were the, the most significant results of uh, that particular study.
1: That's absolutely
2: fascinating. So I didn't know a whole lot
1: about this topic prior, but the whole backstory of having to dig up the data later after it was abandoned is fascinating to me. We're all in a position right now where we're talking more about the economy, about mental health and public health in ways we never have before, especially right now with the U.S. government sending most people stimulus checks. What can we learn from income and how it relates to the current pandemic?
2: I I find it very interesting. I think that one of the things we're seeing um, across all high-income countries, uh, middle-income countries, is the total incapacity of our existing Um, support systems to deal with um, a challenge of this magnitude. Um, Certainly in Canada, we're finding the gaps. We're recognizing the people who don't fit into any of the existing schemes that we have. And uh, the same thing, of course, is happening in the U.S., in the U.K., in Spain, and so on. And it's interesting to see the number of different uh, responses that are coming from various governments. Um, If you think about a basic income, at its heart, a basic income is really a transfer of resources from the government to individuals sufficient to allow them to to live a modest but dignified life, right? When you think about how you're going to apply it, how you're actually going to formulate that in practice, um, it it takes a number of different forms, but they tend to fall into two big categories. On the one hand, you can end up with a system similar to the one that I believe is under consideration in the U.S., um, sometimes called the universal basic income, where the government sends money to everybody, rich or poor, people who need it, people who don't need it, and they hope to rely on the, the income tax system to claw it back from higher income individuals at the end of the year. Um, the alternative and and the system I prefer is, is much more similar to the uh, program that was in place in, um, in, um, in the income project. And that is the amount of money you receive depends on your income from other sources. So if, if you're low income, whether you're working or not working, um, you receive a basic income. And as your income from other sources increases, the um, basic income stipend declines, but it declines less than proportionately. So it gradually um, disappears as income increases. But, um you know which which system is preferable really depends on on the kind of infrastructure that's in place in the country in which you live. And so, seeing these different um, different responses to the covid nineteen epidemic is really interesting from a social science point of view, because what this is in effect is is a huge, unplanned social experiment.
0: Thank you so much. You've been an amazing guest and we're so lucky to have your insights on Case Confirmed.